0: So let's open up in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful for the work that we see being done in the church uh, through what seems like very ordinary means. Even at these meetings of classes and synod or presbyteries or what have you, um, it may seem boring. It may seem kind of uh, just kind of dull and 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 plodding, but. Lord, there's, there's a great benefit to working together as a group of churches, serving one cause, which is the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to see how we can work together by doing together as a group much more than we can do individually as single churches. So it's good to see the church doing its work, and while it may look... Uh, is very pedantic at times, Lord. We know that you, even through these things, you are working. And now, Lord, as we get ready to look at your word this morning, we pray that uh, you will be with us this morning as we look at these verses, as we consider what the Apostle Paul has written to the churches of Galatia, and how we might apply these things to our lives so that we can live lives in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In to love one another, and to do good works that bring glory to your name. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn in them to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 18. You may be wondering, why are we going through chapter 3 so... So slowly, you yeah, know. I was just looking at it. it's like we looked at verses one through five, then six through nine, then ten through fourteen, now fifteen through eighteen, and next time we're going to look at verses nineteen through twenty-two, and then we'll finish the chapter. Why six lessons through Galatians chapter three? Um, well, because Galatians chapter three is very important to Paul's argument in this letter. It's the main thrust of the letter. Chapters three and four. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 were kind of just leading up to it, so we kind of went through those a little more quickly. But Paul's argument here really needs to be looked at closely. Um, so hopefully I'm doing that and not losing the forest to focus on you know, certain trees in the forest. But hopefully we can try to keep uh, you know, touch with the whole as we look through these smaller chunks Uh, it would be very easy to do a larger chunk and maybe miss something. So, Anyway, verses 15 through 18, Paul continues to write, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. We'll stop there. So again, just looking through Galatians, uh, Paul in chapter 3 is trying to dismantle the position that the Judaizers who had infiltrated the church there were bringing in. This idea that you are justified by works of the law. The idea that you are made righteous by works of the law. Faith, yes. But works of the law added to faith. And Paul... Says that that is not a gospel. He says that very, uh, very clearly up front. If there's, if you are preaching any other gospel than the one that you received, that gospel is a false gospel, and that person should be anathematized. And he tells you what the gospel is at the end of chapter two, where he says we are justified, we are made righteous, declared righteous uh, by faith in Christ, and that's it. Faith in Christ alone. Uh, we are not justified by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, in chapter 3, he, explode, he kind of explodes that argument up by looking at, first, the, the experience of the Galatians. That's what we saw in verses 1-5. through five. How were you made righteous? How were you declared righteous? How were you, how were you received into the family of God? Did you begin by the Spirit now being perfected by the flesh? And then he looks in verses 6 through 9 at the, the example of Abraham. How was Abraham justified before God? By works or by faith? Well, again, by faith. And then he looks in verses 10 through 14 about how the promise and the law work together. It's like, look, if, if it is, or sorry, that's this, this one, how, how the, uh, you've got the, the righteous will live by faith, not by, by works of the law. How, if you try to add works to the law, you put yourself back under the curse of the law. That's the whole point. Christ has freed us from that curse by becoming a curse for us. If we decide then, okay, thank you, Jesus, for freeing me from the curse, I'm going to go back to working through the law. Well, then basically you said, oh, okay, no, I don't want you. I, I want, I'd rather be under the curse. That's kind of, kind of what he's saying. It's like, no, you don't want to be under the curse because you have to do the whole law. You know, uh, how many people here can do the whole law? How many people here can just do one commandment? How many people here can do none of it? <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's the point he's making. You, you, you can't do this by works. You live by faith. So he quotes from Habakkuk. I mean, really, that last section he quoted from like three different passages. Uh, Deuteronomy, Habakkuk, Leviticus 18. If you're going to live by the law, you've got to do the whole thing, the whole thing. So now he's going to look at the law and the promise, the law and the promise, and show how the promise that was made, essentially it just boils down to this, the promise that was made to Abraham was not annulled when the law came. That, that's really, you know, we could just say, okay, you know, the rest of, time, the, rest of the time is, you know, fellowship time. I mean, that, that's kind of what the passage boils down to. The promise that was made to Abraham is not annulled by the law which came later. But you're not going to get off that easy. We're going to look at this a little more deeply. But that's that's the point here. So, again, the theme. God's covenant promises to Abraham were not nullified by the law, but were fulfilled in Christ, the true heir of the promise. So, your outline has four points, one for each verse. And so we're going to look first at verse 15, human example, a human example. So he says here, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So he's comparing the law with faith previously and saying the righteous one, the one who desires to be righteous, has to live the life of faith. You You cannot live the life of the law. You cannot put yourself under the curse of the law. And then he says, okay, it's almost as if Paul is saying, Alright, maybe I'm getting a little too deep here. Let, let's illuminate this a little bit. He says, let me give you a human example of what I'm referring to. So, he's like, this, this is what we're talking about. He's saying here, is, might be hard to understand. Let's just simplify this. Man-made covenants, once you ratify the covenant, you don't add to it, you don't annul it. It's been ratified. The, the, the terms have been signed. Man-made covenants or covenants of men literally. Once a covenant has been ratified, once a covenant has been publicly confirmed, made valid, ratified, it cannot be added to or annulled. Now you may be thinking it's like, well, we break covenants all the time. We break contracts all the time. Well, yeah, but if you do, oftentimes you face consequences for breaking the contract. One one example I like to refer to is, in case you may have forgotten, I, I'm, I'm from Chicago, right? Yeah. And I was a Chicago sports fan, still am. Uh, and in the, in the late 80s going into the 90s, uh, the Chicago Bulls were really, really good, okay? They had won six championships. And, of course, the, the foundation of that team was Michael Jordan, but he had a partner. He had a partner named Scotty Pippen. Now, Scotty Pippen was a very good player. And uh, after his first contract, he was renegotiating for his next contract. Now, Scottie Pippen wanted, he wanted, uh, he wanted security. He wanted a long-term contract so he can guarantee, I'm gonna get this much money over the span of this many years. Now, management told him, it's like, I advise you not to sign this contract. You do not wanna lock yourself up for eight years at your age. What you wanna do is maybe take a three or four year contract and then in three or four years, see what the market is, because the market value of your skills will be outpaced by, by the time this contract is not even half done. Pippin's like, nope, nope, I want the security. So he signs the contract against even the advice of the team management. <laughs> and then as the years go by, uh, at one point, he was sort of, he was all, often considered one of the best players in the league, and was sort of like the 200th highest paid player in the league, or something, yeah. he... The market value far outstripped the value of his contract, so he wanted to renegotiate. Now, now Jerry Reinsdorf, who was the owner of the team, said, if you sign this contract, do not come back to me. I will not renegotiate. And that was one thing Reinsdorf never did. He never renegotiated anyone's contract once it was signed. That's the point he's saying here. It's like, once a contract is signed, you can't add to it, you can't annul it. It is signed, it has been ratified. And that's what Paul is trying to make the point here. Paul's going to, now the, the argument he's making here is what is called uh, from the lesser to the greater. Okay, so he's saying essentially the, the argument is this if this is the case for human covenants, how much more is it going to be the case now for covenants that God makes? If a human covenant is sealed once it's been ratified, what do you think God's covenants are going to be? You think they're going to be any less uh, rigid? You think they're going to be any less firm or certain because God made them? No, that's the point. So the human example is man-made covenants are firm. Once they have been ratified, you don't annul it. You can't cancel it out. You can't add to it. It is sealed. And now he's going to make the argument that how much more now is that with God's covenant. So now let's look at verse 16 with the offspring of Abraham. Now, this is an important verse. Okay, it's an important verse for a lot of reasons. And uh, we're going to see Paul make some interesting uh, arguments here in verse 16. But we're going to look at the offspring of Abraham in verse 16 here. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So, Paul now is moving on to the promises of God that he made with Abraham. Now, you may be thinking, well, what promises? Well, let's turn to Genesis, please. We're going to look at a few passages in Genesis where God made some promises to Abraham. The first one is Genesis 12. All right, Genesis chapter 12. Well known passage. Uh, this is God's call of Abram um, after. His family had decided they were going to go to the land of Canaan and they got about halfway and they stopped in the Fertile Crescent area of the Middle East there in Mesopotamia. God later then calls Abram and says, leave, I want you to go to some place and I'm going to promise to you. And Abram's like, okay, let's go. And he packs up and he goes. And after promising him there that he's going to be a blessing, I'm going to make you great, Uh, your name will be great, you're going to be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later on in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram as he he arrives at the land of Canaan, and the Lord says to Abram, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then in chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. This is where uh, Abram and Lot separate because there's too many flocks there. So Lot, you know, Abram's like, let's not fight. You know, we're family. Uh, There's plenty of land here to go along. Look over there. It says there's, you know, the valley, very fertile. uh, Or, you know, look over here to the land of Canaan. And Lot looks over to the valley and sees the cities and sees how wonderful the land is. And he says, I'll take that part. So he goes to, you know, ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, of course, Abraham ends up in the promised land. And then in verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham, sorry, Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now flip over to chapter 17. Chapter 17. This is where the covenant is, in a sense, the sign of the covenant, I should say, is given. The covenant was ratified, it was promised in chapter 12, ratified in 15, where God goes through the, uh, uh, through the, 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 the pieces of the animals to signify that he will be the one who will guarantee the covenant. Abram was, took no part in that. And then in chapter 17, he gives him the sign of the covenant, starting in verse 7. Of chapter 17, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So these are the promises that God made to Abraham. Now, go back to Galatians, please. If you notice, in each of those places we look, God said, I will give this land to you and to your offspring, to your offspring, to your offspring. Now, notice Paul's little word play that he makes here in verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Yes, we just looked at three places where it said that. Now, Paul says here, it does not say, and to offsprings. What do you mean? You don't say offsprings, Okay. Offspring is a word that is sort of a collective noun, okay? It has a singular form, but it can refer to many. If I say, you know, I mean, so I, I look at you guys, how many offspring did you have? You, you would say, well, we had five children, okay. It is five, right? Yeah, okay, five. I don't know, I was, it came out and it's like I was almost certain about that. Now, you don't say we had five offsprings, <laughs> We have our offspring number five. Okay, uh, the point, you know, and, and even in, in the original language, in Greek and in Hebrew, the word has it's the same uh, meaning. It has so in the Greek it's sperma. I'll just leave that there. In the Hebrew it's Zarah, Okay, zara. and it means offspring, um, seed. It means you know you don't say seeds, you say you know seed. It means your 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 the generations, the children. And again, it's a singular word that refers to a collective. Now, why is Paul making this weird little word play here? Well, he's saying here that though there's a sense where Abraham's seed or offspring, referring to many, referring to his natural descendants, Isaac, Jacob, his 12 children, their sons and daughters, uh, and so on and so forth, while the promises, uh, there's a sense in which those promises, they did receive those promises. Paul's point in all this is to show that ultimately the promises made to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ. That's what the point he's making here. It does not say to offsprings, but to offspring who is Christ. The point Paul is making here is ultimately the promise is fulfilled in Christ. The promise was given to Abraham, and it's fulfilled in Christ. Now, what the Judaizers were thinking here is they wanted to keep the works of the law, but Paul is saying, no, you need to move forward. You can't go back to the old way of doing things. You've got to move forward. All of these things that were made to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ. This is important, not only to our understanding of Paul's argument here in chapter 3, but of the Bible as a whole. Um, Just flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And in verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul here makes an amazing statement. He says, for all the promises of God... So how many of the promises of God? All the promises of God... Um, find their yes in him that is Christ that is why it is through him Christ that we utter our amen so let it be to God for his glory all of the promises of God find their yes their fulfillment their realization in Christ John Owen um, Puritan writer uh, I want to say 17th century It says here, Christ, this commenting on this verse, Christ is the true seed of Abraham in whom all the promises are confirmed and fulfilled. He is the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And through faith in him, believers are included in God's covenant promises and receive the blessings of salvation. So Paul's argument here is that the promises that were made by God to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ. And then he's going to later on say then, you are recipients of these promises by the same faith that Abraham exercised. Because that's the point he's going to make here. So the offspring of Abraham is Christ. Yes, he had many offsprings. But the one that we're really concerned about is, is Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate offspring. And I mean that's why, you know, Matthew begins his gospel, the genealogy of the book of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. He connects Jesus to these two great figures in Israel's history, Abraham their forefather and David their great king. So this is a story about Jesus who is the son of Abraham. Now Abraham had many sons, right? But who is the ultimate son of Abraham? It's Jesus Christ. Same thing with David. David had many sons, but the ultimate son of David is Jesus Christ. So now let's look at verse 17 where we see here the law does not annul the promise. So you're like, well, oh, okay, Paul, can you can kind of summarize what you're talking about? Well, that's what he starts in verse 17. This is what I mean. So it's, <laughs> you know, that's like the person who's been talking for a long time says, all right, if you hear nothing else, hear this. That's what, you know, in other words, this is what I mean. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Well, I'll tell you what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. This is the point of the passage. What am I saying? That's what I'm saying. The law cannot annul the promise. Why? Why? Because the promise was made to Abraham, and then it was, only, it was 430 years later that the law was given to Moses. Why such a gap? Well, I mean, there's pl- various ways to explain that. Uh, you can go back to Genesis, don't turn to Genesis 15, but in, if you remember in Genesis 15, uh, when God is speaking to Abraham and he tells him to cut up all these animals, he's, he says something there in that passage, he says, your, your, um, your descendants, I forget the exact word, your descendants are going to be slaves in another country. They're going to be taken, and they're going to be away for 400 years. And then they're going to come back here, right? The, you know, the law, in a sense, and we're going to look at this next time, because the question is, well, then, why do we have the law? And that's going to be the next, you know, if you look at verse 19, that's the question, right? Why the law? We'll get to that. But in a sense, the law was given to now govern... This nation which had started with one man 400 years earlier and now by the time you get to you know Moses and they' they're, they're returning to, to the land of promise you've got two million plus people now so the law is set there to to guide them to establish them as a nation to give them um, rules for worship and sacrifice and so on and so forth basically the, the law is given as a way to um, it's their covenant for staying in the land. If they were were obedient to the covenant, they stayed and enjoyed the blessings of the land. If they were unfaithful to the covenant, well, they were kicked out, right? And that's exactly what happened. They were unfaithful to the covenant for a long period of time, and God finally kicked them out of the land and put them into exile, as he promised he would, if they did not follow his covenant. But the point Paul's making here is that you cannot annul the promises of God by the law. If anything, the law kind of Establishes the covenant, not, not annuls it. And Paul's opponents were elevating this covenant above, uh, to the law, uh, the, elevating, I should say, the law above the promises made to God. That's the whole point of what they were arguing for. You need to do works of the law. Well, I mean, so what they're doing is they're taking the law and they're saying the law is more important than the promises made. You, yes, faith, but you have to do these, these things. You have to circumcise. You have to follow dietary laws. You have, to do, you have to become a Jew. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You're elevating the law over the promise. When you do that, you're annulling the promise by trying to fulfill the law. You cannot do that. By going back to the law, they were annulling the promises that God made to Abraham and to his offspring, Christ, and then to all those who are in Christ through faith. So if a man-made covenant is sacrosanct once it's ratified, again, going back to verse 15, how much more so than the promises of God? If God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. <laughs> right? He is the ultimate promise keeper. And then you say, well, why the law? Well, like you said, we'll look at that next time. So that's, that's your enticement to come back next time. <laughs> uh, we'll look at why the law. i give you a hint. It says the law is given to be a tutor. Okay, the law is an instructor. It's a pedagogue. It's a it's a teacher to prepare the people for Christ. But we'll get to that more in depth next time. So now, finally, we have here in verse eighteen the law and the promise. So now Paul puts the icing on the cake, if it will, if, if it, as you ask, excuse me, uh, he puts the icing on the cake, if you will, here in verse eighteen. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no longer, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And that kind of stands to reason. Right? If, 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 the law, if the promise could be earned through the law, then you don't need a promise. right? If, if, if the inheritance, I should say, comes through the law, then it's no longer by promise. It, the, the two, again, law and promise, are... Uh, they, They are antithetical to one another in this sense. If you can earn it, it doesn't need to be promised to you. If it's promised to you, then you don't need to earn it. It's the same thing with grace, right? If you have to do anything to earn grace, it's not grace anymore. That's the whole point. So you cannot inherit it through the law. If you did, then the promise that God made is null and void. So in other words, if the Galatian Judaizers were correct and you are justified by works of the law, that kind of makes God a a promise breaker, doesn't it? Because God said, no, you're you're justified by by faith. And the Judaizers are saying, no, 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 you're justified by works of the law. Well, then you're contradicting what God is saying, if you say that. Why? Because according to the the Old Testament, the inheritance came through a promise to Abraham, not through the Mosaic law. Charles Hodge also wrote a commentary on this and said of this verse, The promise, therefore, was not only made to Abraham, but it was made to him and his seed, and not to him and his seed through the law, but through faith. Hence, those who believe, whether Jews or Gentiles, are the true children of Abraham and inherit the blessing which was promised to him. And another commentary wrote on this verse, The promise to Abraham and to his seed that he would inherit the earth and that through them many nations would be blessed cannot see fulfillment through the ethnically and nationally specific Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was tied to the land of Canaan. But it, you know, Paul makes an interesting um, comment in Romans 4. In Romans four, uh, it, it, the, Romans is really sort of like a more mature, expanded version of Galatians in a lot of ways. Okay, so what Paul said in Galatians early in his in his life, he he expands more on later in his life uh, in Romans. And in Romans chapter four, he's he's doing the same thing here, where he's trying to to explain to the Roman church. Uh, not the Roman Catholic Church, but the Church of Christ in Rome there that he, to whom he's writing, uh, how this justification through faith worked in the life of Abraham. And in verse 13, he says, The promise to Abraham and to his offspring, it's the very same lo- wording we're looking at in Galatians 3, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. uh, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, I just mentioned this interestingly because, you know, the promise to Abraham was to the land of Canaan. But Paul here is saying that the promise that Abraham would be heir of the world, that is fulfilled in Christ. Because Christ comes and we will inherit, in a a sense, uh, the world So the promises of God here are guaranteed. God cannot lie. He is the ultimate promise keeper. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6 of Hebrews. In verse 13 through 19. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited... to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But again, God promises. God cannot lie. God cannot break his promises. He is the ultimate promise keeper. So as we wrap this up, Here Paul again is just continuing to hammer the foundation of this argument that the Judaizers have been putting forth who wanted to add works of the law to faith in Christ. The law has a purpose, but it is not a means of justification or sanctification. We looked at this in previous lessons. What does the law do? The law tells you what sin is. Can the law justify you? No. Can the law sanctify you? No, because you, cannot, you don't have the power to do the law and, and you, are, you, you have no capacity to be perfectly obedient to the law. All the law does is show you where you fall short. Now we are, in a sense, justified by works, it's just not our works, it's through the works of Christ who did perfectly keep the law and who then gives us that righteousness through faith. So the law has a purpose, but it is not a means of justification or sanctification, nor is it a way to earn the inheritance. And this should be a reminder, I think, for all of us, or anyone who try to add works to any part of our salvation. Well, why would we do that? Well, because we're kind of wired for works, right? Uh, that, that's our natural bent, is to try to do something. Um, you know, try doing someone a favor, <laughs> You know, when, when, when you go out to supper with a couple of people, you know, try, try to pay the bill. Okay, that, that's gonna, you always have that fight over trying to pay the bill. And then, you know, you say, well, I'll get it next time. Why? Because you cannot, no one wants to feel like they're in debt to somebody. So um, we, we are wired for works. Um, and it's very tempting for us to feel like we need to do something, to earn something. It's like, you know, this, this whole idea of, of just faith, it just doesn't seem like it's enough. Um, but the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ and are received by faith. You cannot, you cannot earn them. You can't work for them. You can't do anything else. Uh, if we try to earn anything through works of the law, we not only place ourselves under the curse of the law, but we also then make the promise null and void. That's the whole point. If you're, if you're going to earn it, then you're, you're basically saying, I don't need it by faith. You, you can't put the two together. You just cannot put the two together. It's either all of faith... Or none of it's by faith. And if it's not by faith, then it's by works. And if it's by works, well, then we're all in trouble, right? Now, Paul will later say in chapter 5, right, um, probably my favorite verse in all all of the book, in chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, "...for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery." So if I had anything to kind of leave you with, it would be this. Don't let anyone rob you of the freedom that you have in Christ. Freedom from the curse of the law. Paul will say in Romans 8, verse 1, right? There's therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. The law has been satisfied for us. And if you try to then, put, you know, try to then work to earn it, you can't. You, you just can't. It's been given to you. Don't let anyone rob you of that freedom. That's what Paul's urging here. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Works of the law, are is, that's the yoke of slavery. It's like if you're going to do that, then you're going to have to live by the whole thing and you're not going to do it. So don't listen to people who say you need to do more or try harder. Those, those are just ways, to again, to enslave us to this works mentality. Or anyone who says, you're not a Christian unless you do this, this, or this. Okay, well, you know, to which I would reply, well, how much of this, this, and this do I have to do to be a satisfactory Christian? Do I have to do 80%, 90%, 70% okay? You know, you know that's the point. It's like, no, if you look at how the law needs to be satisfied, it's 100%. And again, we cannot get there from here. But the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and earned the inheritance and that through faith we are made partakers of that righteousness and we are co-heirs with Christ. I love how Paul says it in Romans 8, I can find it real quickly here, Romans 8 verses 16 through 17, the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What a blessing. Beautiful verse. And then if we are children, then we are heirs. And heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Spirit assures us of our adoption into the family of Christ. And then if we are adopted into the family of Christ, then we receive all of the blessings, all of the inheritance. It's, you know, it's like whatever Christ gets, we get. Because we are co-heirs with him. And that is good news. God's covenant promises are secure in Christ and they're available to all who believe in him, not by our works, but by his finished work.